when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In our first episode of 2020, we'll be discussing the latest in the Labour leadership contest as the race officially kicks off. Some people get endorsements and others don't. Plus, we'll be looking at what's going on with Brexit, with the first visit of the new EU Commission president to the UK and those difficult decisions facing Boris Johnson. I'm delighted to be joined by our chief political correspondent, Jim Picard, Columnist Robert Shrimsley, political editor George Parker, and political correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, listeners, then do subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. You can also leave us a nice positive review. The first political story to dominate the new year has been the Labour leadership contest. The race to succeed Jeremy Corbyn is well underway and the new person will be in place by April. With six candidates declared and possibly a seventh still yet to enter the race, the whole thing is quite wide open. And whereas once Jeremy Corbyn's team were assured of putting their own chosen successor in place, that may not necessarily be the case. So Jim Picard, let's just begin with how this race is going to work because we had the official meeting of Labour's NEC this week where they decided the timetable for the whole thing. What are the key dates to know? So the race has already begun and each candidate needs at least 21 MPs or MEPs to get onto the ballot. That process ends on Monday and then after that it's a case of the candidates also need either 5% of constituency Labour parties or 5% of affiliates which means things like trade unions or BAME Labour or LGBT labour, that kind of thing. So that process will run much longer. That There's about a month of that. And the key moments of that will be who the big unions back. We've already had Unison coming out yesterday and back in Keir Starmer, but we still don't know about the other big unions. And then we get to April the 2nd. It all closes on April the 4th. There will be a special conference in London on a Saturday, and I will be there covering it for the FT. So we have a very exciting moment. Well, let's have a look at the candidates who are in the race and where they're all at. We should probably begin with the obvious frontrunner, which is Keir Starmer, who's Labour's shadow Brexit spokesperson, and began the race in a pretty commanding position. He wrote an op-ed in The Guardian that was well-received. He produced a video outlining some of the legal cases he worked on over his long career that helped left-wing causes. And when the nominations began by MPs, was already straight out ahead, hitting that 22 requirement Jim mentioned there. And so far, he's got a lot of momentum and it's beginning to feel a little bit unstoppable at this very early stage, we should say. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. I think it's very interesting that we're talking about Keir Starmer already as the front runner because the narrative of the Labour Party leadership election, you know, right up until the general election defeat, was that the front runner was meant to be Rebecca Long Bailey, who we would say was the other leading candidate, I think, in this contest. Someone who's, I think, now presenting herself as the continuity but change Corbynite. 
But you're right, Keir Starmer has been more effective out of the blocks. I think the shock of the defeat has made people think they need to make sure they get someone who's got the personality and the gravitas to persuade the public that they are prime ministerial material. It's not probably surprising that he's doing better within the parliamentary party. I think what's interesting is the extent to which all of the candidates, bar one, are working very hard to show just how loyal they were to Jeremy Corbyn, even when they weren't necessarily that loyal to and just how left-wing they are. We know who the audience they're going for here, and they're all going to have to present their left credentials all the way through this contest, it looks like, if they're going to win. So it's going to be a long contest, but he is undoubtedly out in front at this very early stage. Jim, were you surprised by how strong Keir has started in this race because he's obviously a big supporter of Remain and has advocated for a second referendum for quite some time. And of course, some people would say that it was Labour's policy on Remain and the referendum that cost them so many seats at the election. Some say it was the equivocation as opposed to backing Remain to blame. But it's very interesting that given that and given that he is of the soft left of the party, not the Corbynite harder left, that he seems to have this momentum and whether it's the MP's Backing him, the bookmakers' odds and also internal polling from YouGov shows that he is in a strong position. Yeah, he's definitely in a strong position. I think we shouldn't overdo the extent to which momentum is how many MPs you've got because for listeners who don't follow this too closely, you could have 150 MPs behind you and you could have someone with only 22 but it's still decided by the grassroots and therefore that might not matter in the final analysis. I'm surprised by how far ahead he is on the current terms given that he's a man and given how many senior figures have been saying for years that the party's never had a female leader and the time has come for a female leader and suddenly they seem to have forgotten that somewhat. When you look at Emily Thornbury who barely has any MPs nominating her at all and she's a sort of similar character, legally, Romani, Londonish, soft left, very similar to Keir but she's been left standing by him. That's kind of a surprise I suppose. I think your point about him being very Remain and having been the person who pushed Labour onto this second referendum position and then he was trying to push them onto basically a revoke position. I mean, yes, loads of seats were lost, possibly partly as a consequence of that, but don't forget that the membership of the Labour Party did agree with what he was doing at the time and probably still don't think it was necessarily a mistake. I also think one has to avoid falling into the narrative that the Corbynites are pushing on this. That's a narrative that you're getting from the Corbyn faithful. It was, we were to remain and he's too Southern, which obviously plays into the hands of their candidate. But the point is, we don't know what the counterfactuals of this is. If Labour hadn't been at least in favour of a second referendum in this election, it might have done far, far worse in the Southern seats it held on to. And I think looking at this from a sort of high up perspective, people who loved Jeremy Corbyn and got enthused by Corbyn always hated people like us saying it was a bit of a personality cult. But I think there were elements of it being a personality cult and people projected onto this somewhat blank canvas things that they believed in. In some respects, they were right and others, they were wrong. They just sort of wanted to believe in Jeremy. They saw him as this grandfatherly kind of Christ-like figure, not to exaggerate too much. And so the question was always, when you strip him out of Corbynism, if you put someone in there backed by the same people and thinks the same things but isn't as charismatic, they might struggle. And I think Rebecca Long-Bailey, who is that person, might struggle. 
Well, that's a brilliant segue there. I was going to say it's a personality cult without the personality, as you might put it. So, Robert, the next candidate in the race, of course, as Jim says, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who's the shadow business secretary, who has been a protégé of John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor, has been talked up by Corbyn for a long time as the person to continue the project. Now, that person was initially meant to be Laura Pidcock, who's the shadow employment minister, but she unexpectedly lost her seat in the general election. And so all the focus has been on Rebecca Long-Bailey. And her start in the contest has been incredibly shaky. She had a Guardian op-ed that one Labour grandee described to me as a confection of nothingness and described her as the lobotomy candidate because this sense that she's simply a projection screen for Corbynite views. Some of that may be unfair. I'm sure her article that came in Tribune magazine was much more thorough and much more tub-thumping to the left-wing cause. But generally, given how strong... Mr Corbyn and his control of the party has been, it's quite something about how just little impact she's had so far. Yeah, it is very early. If you think back to the Tory leadership election, how long it took Boris Johnson to get started and people were saying, where is he? So one can overstate this point, but she has had a shaky start. I think people are unfair to her. I think she's perfectly able. What I think is the problem is whether she's got the level of charisma and the independence of mind to push the party in the direction it's got to go. And I think one of the key points we have to remember is that Two things that Labour Party members have to focus on almost before anything else. Number one, they have lost four elections in a row now. It may be that some of them have been close, but the truth is they've lost four elections in a row. And at some point, they're going to want to get back into government. And the second point is this. For the first time in a long time, the Labour Party is going to have to fight for attention and for relevance because parliamentary arithmetic does not matter very much anymore. The Tories have a substantial majority. They're going to be able to do whatever they want. They're not going to suffer very many, if any, defeats in Parliament. Therefore, what Labour as a parliamentary party does is not going to be incredibly important. It's going to have to fight for attention. And when it gets it, it's going to have to really nail it and look the part. And so you're going to need a leader who's got sufficient oomph and sufficient presence for people to pay attention to the Labour Party when they have no particular reason to do so. And she's tried to present herself as not being continuity Corbyn, but when you look at who's backing her, which is Momentum, John McDonnell, probably Unite the Union, they are the Corbynistas. And she did this famous interview this week when asked to score Corbyn out of 10 and she gave him 10 out of 10. And a lot of people who are backing her have said to me in private, that was quite a dumb thing to do because you're basically saying, I'm just going to offer you the same reheated scraps that failed back in December. I've been doing a profile of her for the weekend FT and speaking to quite a few people that know her. And you get the impression of someone who is quite forensic, incredibly hardworking. People that know her find her a less robotic character than one might think just from meeting her casually or seeing her on TV. They say she's warmer than she comes across. But you also get the impression that she was overpromoted far too fast. What happened was when over 60 shadow ministers resigned in the aftermath of the EU referendum, they were desperate to plug the holes in the green benches and she became shadow chief secretary to the treasury almost overnight and then became shadow business secretary a few months later. And the way that one colleague put it to me, which I thought was probably quite fair, was that for a new MP, relatively young, she's doing all right, but should she even be in the shadow cabinet in normal conditions? One of the things that strikes me, a more imaginative approach for her, she is the Corbynite candidate. There isn't anybody to the left of her now. There was talk of one, but there isn't. She is the proper Corbynite candidate. Therefore, the imaginative thing to do now is to confound the party and show that she's not quite as Corbynite because she's got that part of the vote more or less stitched up now. So what she needs to do is show she can tack in a little bit without abandoning the fundamental cause of her beliefs and say, actually, I'm a little bit more interesting. I'm a little bit more mainstream than you thought. That would be the smart place. She doesn't look like she wants to make it. But I don't think you can fake interesting. She's not interesting. Mm. Being interesting is impossible to fake. And Keir Starmer can be a bit wooden, 
that he has gravitas and she lacks charisma and gravitas. And there's also this question as well, Jim, about the arguments about the election, because, of course, a lot of Corbyn supporters in the media and on social media have been saying, well, we won the argument, talking about shares of votes and all that sort of thing. But trying to connect that with the electoral reality of giving the Tories an 80 seat majority in the House of Commons seems to somewhat fly in the face of that. But I just want to quickly touch on the other candidates in this race as well, because those two are very much in poll position. And you have to think that if the dynamics don't change, which they well could, that's where it's going to end up. You know, the question of which one of those is going to come. But the other one we've got as well, who's done amazingly poorly so far as well as Emily Thornberry, who's the shadow foreign secretary, quite a big figure in Mr. Corbyn's front bench. She's been on TV a lot. And I think she's a watered down version of Keir Starmer in a way, represents lots of the same things, but had very few support from MPs and has really struggled to get any momentum in this race. Yeah, and I mean, the way people have put it to me is just that she's almost exactly the same kind of candidate as Keir Starmer and people have just concluded that he's more of a heavyweight. I thought she gave the best answer to the question of what do you give Corbyn mm. in terms of out of 10. And I think she gave him 0 out of 10 for winning elections, 2 out of 10 for dealing with anti-Semitism and 10 out of 10 for enthusing the base, which is probably... It's probably quite accurate, isn't it? Yeah. So we don't think at this moment in time that she's going to get enough MPs by Monday. We don't think that Clive Lewis, who's the alternative hard left candidate, will get enough MPs to get through. And so we're then down to potentially four candidates, one of which is Jess Phillips, the Blairite. And the other person we haven't spoken much about is, of course, Lisa Nandy. I hear on the grapevine that the GMB union is considering backing Lisa, which would give her much more momentum than she currently has. She's also been doing quite well, apparently, at some of the private hustings that have taken place so far. And I should just remind people that what happened with Jeremy Corbyn is that in 2015, I can't remember the exact sequencing, that he got the backing of six mostly major unions, which gave him a huge fillip. But he also did the hustings and people were coming back from the hustings and saying to me, he's the one who is exciting the crowds. He's the one people are listening to and they're enthused by. So it's not impossible for Lisa Nandy or indeed Jess Phillips to be on those podiums and capture people's imaginations. It's quite a long contest. Because those are the two candidates, Robert, Jess Phillips and Lisa Nandy, who could offer the most interesting pitches here because Jess Phillips is very much based on her personality and if Jim was saying earlier, Rebecca Longbelly maybe lacks with that oomph in her personality then Jess Phillips has it in abundance and, you know, she can be Marmite I think to some people. A lot of people like it, some people don't like it but her pitch is just very much taking a personality approach to Boris Johnson and Lisa Nandy who we've had on our podcast before has one of the most cogent and interesting analysis about where Labour's gone wrong over Brexit connecting with its heartlands and as Jim was saying she impressed quite a lot at the PLP so they both could surprise what do you make of both of them? I think they are both interesting I and mean, I think together the four candidates if you could composite them all you'd have a fantastic contender I think Jess Phillips's problem is that she was too unrelentingly disloyal to Jeremy Corbyn and I don't think the membership will tolerate that although she is immensely charismatic very likeable saying a lot of very sensible things my hunch is that that will do for her I also think she's a little bit unruly in some of her policy statements she got caught out saying maybe we should support rejoin the European Union. So I think that's a problem for her. Lisa Nanny, I think, is a very interesting candidate. And as Jim says, I think if she begins to get traction, could surprise people. A lot of people were talking about Lisa Nandy as a future leader up until the moment when she broke with Jeremy Corbyn. And I think she comes from exactly the right place in the party. She's also geographically interesting because she is from the north and she was on the Leave side. I think that the combination of all these candidates is one of the reasons why it's difficult for Rebecca Long-Bailey, because Jim was exactly right when he said that personality and performance will begin to matter enormously in these contests. One of the reasons why 
the strength of the Corbynite movement and momentum and organisations like that will only get you so far in a leadership contest where everybody's looking and everybody's taking an opinion. You know, momentum can organise a slate for the National Executive Committee when the candidates are people who nobody knows. But in a leadership contest, charisma is going to count. And then to the other candidate you mentioned before, Jim, Clive Lewis, who's running on, again, quite a different platform and arguably in terms of changing the Labour Party, the most radical platform that he's talking about, democratising the mm. party, and in some ways is more to the left of Rebecca Long-Bailey. And when he broke with Jeremy Corbyn, again, over Brexit, that seemed to do his chances a lot of damage. What do you rate his hopes? Because you said he's done these going to get on the ballot. So I think the really interesting thing about Clive is that he's probably quite in line with the membership on an awful lot of stuff. So if you think about what the Labour conference passed last September, the 2030 zero carbon target, the basically no immigration barriers, and they came very close to endorsing a full Remain position. All those are things that Clive Lewis endorses. So when he says, let the members have more say over policy, it's because he's pretty much in line with them. Do I think he's going to get through the MPs? No. I mean, he's got, I think, one or two backers so far. But I noticed that Russell Lloyd Mole, or however you pronounce it, has popped up today saying that even though he doesn't really back Clive, he's going to lend his vote just to kind of broaden the debate. And we, we, know, what, well in we know what happened last time. And I think Clive would actually fare very well. If you had a runoff between Rebecca Long-Bailey and Clive Lewis with a membership, I think that could produce very interesting fireworks. But I don't think that's going to happen. Just my last point I would make is that the thinking has always been even though the membership is largely Corbynista now, or 60% Corbynista back in the last leadership election in 2016, the party has been out of power for nine years. And what I'm hearing from the initial CLP meetings, you know, one of my friends was at Wood Green CLP last night, he was picking up that people are unhappy with having been out of power for so long and they're kind of prepared to try something new, including some diehard Corbynistas who are now talking about Keir. And finally, Robert, for the wildcard who may or may not run... Barry Gardner, who is the Shadow International Trade Secretary, on Wednesday night, there was a whole swathe of rumours that he was going to throw his hat in the race. What would be the logic behind that? There isn't one. There isn't a logic to it. He's not going to win. Barry Gardner is a, has been a political shapeshifter. Hilariously, at about the time he was being discussed yesterday, somebody circulated a video of him sitting behind Tony Blair during the Iraq debate, clapping Tony Blair as Blair proposed the motion for the war on Iraq. Ever since he's become very much a Corbynite loyalist, sent out a lot on television to articulate the Corbynite cause... I don't see a constituency for him. I'd be quite surprised if he made it onto the ballot. Can I mention one other person, however, who we know definitely isn't standing, and that's Angela Rayner, who did a deal with Rebecca Long-Bailey, her flatmate and close friend, that she would instead go for the deputy leadership. Someone who has all the things that Rebecca Long-Bailey, as we've been describing, doesn't seem to have. She has the immediate human touch, the immediate warmth, the charisma, the backstory. And I think, again, it's also very early for her, but I think... She's somebody we should be watching long term because I think she will get the deputy leadership and will become quite an important and charismatic and attractive figure to a lot of voters. And Dean, just to add one final thought on that, if Keir Starmer does win, he's the favourite at the moment, but that may still change. If you had a Keir Starmer leadership and an Angela Rayner deputy leadership, that almost certainly puts her in a position that were Keir not to win a future general election to take over after that. Yeah, and I think the attractive thing for those people who want Labour to do well is that a ticket like that, you could see just about uniting a lot of Corbynistas with the PLP who have been at war with each other for about four years and starting to look less like a party at war with itself is one of the many ingredients you need to start winning elections. 
course, the new political year wouldn't be complete without some Brexit news. Ursula von der Leyen, the new president of the European Commission, came to London to see Boris Johnson to have a friendly chat in Downing Street and she also delivered a lecture at the London School of Economics. Her message was, on the first glance, a positive one, saying that she wants a close relationship between the UK and the EU, but there was also a slither of steel to it. She was saying that if they want to have that deep and special trading relationship, then there will need to be agreement on rules and regulations and instead of taking back control, Mr Johnson would have to be in lockstep with the bloc's rules. This sets up the class that is going to be one of the dominating political themes of 2020. So George Parker, Miss von der Leyen, came to London, trying to be very friendly, and she talked about how her and Boris Johnson had gone to the same school and there was an obvious bonhomie there, the sort of thing Jean-Claude Juncker also liked to develop. But her message was very clear that the EU is going to act tough in these talks. It's not just going to roll over and hand a quick and dirty deal, the sort of thing Mr Johnson would want, but there are still going to be some very tough choices about the UK's future relationship with its nearest trading partner. Yes, I was at Ursula von der Leyen's uh, speech at the London School of Economics, which is um, alma mater. She studied there and she did a eulogy about her time in London, a time she spent in Soho bars rather than in lecture halls and how much she loved Britain and its open, generous spirit and all the rest of it. But as you say, there was a steely message behind the sort of love bombing of Britain, which was, as you say, that if there's going to be a trade deal, it's going to be, frankly, on the EU's terms, largely, because... Boris Johnson set himself a very tight deadline for this to be done by the end of 2020. And she said, look, time is going to be very tight. We are going to have to prioritise if we're going to get a deal by that deadline. And what she means when she says prioritise is prioritise the things the EU really cares about. So we're talking about a trade deal which covers almost exclusively goods where the EU has a massive surplus in trade with the UK rather than services where the surplus goes the other way across the channel. And she also suggested that there may need to be a review of the whole timetable in the middle of the year with the possibility that a transitional deal that expires at the end of 2020 might have to be extended, something which Boris Johnson said is definitely off the table. Of course, Laura Hughes, the whole dynamic has changed following that election result because before Boris Johnson was focused on making compromises to get MPs on board and now he doesn't have to do that at all. And I think when he says we are not extending beyond the end of 2020, that's pretty true and genuine and that Downing Street, everybody you speak to universally says in private that's it it's going to be next year and if we have to have a no deal exit moving from we are still a full member of the single market and customs union onto WTO trading terms then so be it now most people would say that will include some economic damage and hamper trading relations but they feel that they can do that now because they have the mandate from the British people and it's going to be interesting to see how the new Tory party feels about this tough approach Yeah and you have various sectors in the manufacturing industry the car industry industry is one specific body that's actually said to the government, look, we need close alignment or it's going to be economic suicide for us because any reduction in alignment is going to cause friction and extra cost at the borders. And that is really bad news for certain sectors. But again, the government, because they want to be able to set their own rules and leave the block, it means that they're going to put that take back control message ahead of some industry concern. And I think that will be difficult for some Conservative MPs who have big car manufacturers in their constituencies to go back and respond to. But the fact that this discussion about extending the transition has already come up 
is quite interesting because actually it could serve to the ease advantage for there to be a short period of time because as George says, they have the front foot here and they could actually serve to do very well from this these severe and very time-constricting pressures. Now, we know, George, that Boris Johnson's Downing Street is essentially a vote leave government. All of the key figures worked on that leave campaign in the 2016 referendum and they have a very particular approach to things, which is quite hard-nosed and relies on the very simple messages, get Brexit done, take back control, that sort of thing. The vote leave people in Downing Street take the view that now Parliament is united, that the EU cannot rely on people. You know, we had the Dominic Greaves and the David Gorks and what have you in the last mm. Parliament who would undermine, as they would put it, the government's approach. The government would say we're doing one thing, but the EU could see Parliament do another. There is no chance of that happening now. Do you think that will focus minds at all in Brussels or not? Because they claim it will. And the fact that you've got this majority, you've got a prime minister who's made these clear commitments on what he wants on alignment and leaving. Will that affect the EU's approach at all? Or do they not see it in that way? I think to a certain extent, the clarity that you've just described is welcomed in Brussels. I think they like the idea that they know what they're dealing with and they know that whatever is agreed in Brussels will then be implemented through Parliament. And it's not just the vote leave people on the political side, it's also David Frost, who's the chief British negotiator in these negotiations, is someone else who's a Brexiteer, quite unusual in the Foreign Service to find a Brexiteer who is fully ideologically aligned with the Prime Minister. So there can be no mixed messages, Brussels knows what it's dealing with. But equally, the EU is a bigger trading bloc than the UK by a significant margin. And frankly, they are the ones who hold a lot of the cards on this because if there's no deal at the end of December, then there's the prospect of a disorderly exit with World Trade Organization tariffs and all the rest of it. And so I suspect what will happen is the EU will say, we like all the clarity, thanks very much, we'll start negotiating in good faith. And then around the middle of the year, they'll suddenly discover that things haven't moved quite as quickly as they might have liked and therefore wouldn't it be a good idea to try and extend. The Brits will say no, at which point the EU will put on the table our friend the fish, because the key to all this, really, it sounds pretty trivial, is the EU will say, look, if you want a trade deal covering goods, fine, but it will be a thin trade deal. It won't cover services. It will just cover tariffs and quotas. In exchange, we will expect you to, A, apply the level playing field provisions on things like state aid, competition rules, taxation, the environment, labour standards, and we'll expect you to open up the access to your fishing waters. And that's the big bust up that I predict will happen sometime around the middle of 2020. And there's also a sense from that core government, Laura, that if they have to choose between financial services and fish, they would probably choose fish. Now, in regards to the fact that there's about 150 constituencies in the UK that have links to the City of London and depend on its employment. And of course, the huge financial contribution the city makes to the UK economy. People in Downing Street feel they're willing to take that hit for financial services as long as they can protect the Brexit voters in the northeast of Scotland and the various coastal seats that voted for Brexit and voted for Boris Johnson often for the first time. Yes, it's not surprising that Boris Johnson's already raised this as an issue after the meeting and that's because he knows it was so symbolic during the Vote Leave campaign and it was symbolic for Dominic Cummings who led that and is now Boris Johnson's number one advisor. So yeah, they are probably willing to do that. He came out from that meeting saying that the UK would want control of its territorial waters and that was one of the tenants of the campaign. It's something that's very easy for people to understand. And once they've left the EU, they'll go, well, why do we not have control? But it's really, really important to the European Union. And we know that the French are very keen on this and Macron is likely to demand it. And 
in these negotiations, of course, the EU doesn't actually want to look as though it's punishing us. And it's also going to be a test for them internally, because they are going to have to represent all of their member states' interests in these negotiations. And that the fish is, I expect, going to be number one on a lot of countries' agendas. And I don't think it's actually, in this case, actually a trade-off between fish and financial services as far as the British government's concerned, because there's been a bit of a screeching U-turn by the City of London on this whole question of regulatory alignment that we were just talking about. At the outset, people like Philip Hammond believe that the EU and the UK had stayed in lockstep on rules to maintain access to the single market for the City of London. Now that's changed. Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, has gone. He's been replaced by Sajid Javid. And the Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, in a valedictory interview with a valedictory Lionel Barber, our editor, and Chris Giles this week, was making it absolutely clear that from the Bank of England's point of view, it would be foolish to tie yourself to EU regulations. And actually, the City of London needed to diverge from the Brussels rulebook. But before we get to all that, George, there's been also talk this week about sequencing. Now, when we go back to the very beginnings of this joyful process, (laughs) um, we remember David Davis, then Brexit Secretary, said that the sequencing of the talks was going to be, quote, the row of the summer. That was when talks began. He essentially said that the EU, as they did we want to stage it in the divorce process first, followed by the future relationship second. And this, of course, led to the whole system that gave the Irish border backstop that sunk the deal for Theresa May because the EU essentially wanted to make sure it got the money to fill its budget coffers, protect the rights of EU citizens and protect the Northern Irish border. Now, if that sequencing hadn't taken a hold, things could have turned out very differently. But the EU did that. And David Davis has said that he was essentially thrown into that by the UK civil service. I have no idea if that's true or not. But already we're having this suggestion the EU is going to try and sequence it in the way that you said, focusing on things that are positive to the EU first and then follow the things where there's a surplus for the UK second. Do you think there'll be much for a row over sequencing or is this one of those just confected things both sides will do to look tough? No, I think there will be a row over sequencing. I think the way you've just described it is quite right. Don't forget that the EU has almost 50 years of negotiating trade deals as the only competent trade negotiating body of all the EU member states. The UK hasn't had a trade negotiating capacity for the same length of time. These people know what they're doing. And if you speak to trade experts, they'll tell you how this will play out. The EU will drag its feet initially. They'll run down the clock a bit. And then they will present the UK with a demand that they strike a deal on goods first, because that's where the EU, as I mentioned, has a £96 billion surplus in trade. And they will try to secure their objectives on fisheries. And that will happen at the middle of the year. Now, it's possible at that point that the UK government hangs tough and says, fine, well, we'll count down the clock and we'll move on towards the end of December. At that point, if people start to think, hang on a sec, maybe a no trade deal exit is looming with the associated risks of tariffs and quotas at the border, that's when you will start to hear the real howls of protest, not just from industry, which for the moment is keeping its head down, but from some of the Tory MPs that we've just been discussing and being elected for the first time in big manufacturing seats. And just to pick up Laura's point earlier, it's not just the car sector, it's every sector of the UK economy which has integrated supply lines, whether it's chemicals, pharmaceuticals or plane making. I was speaking to Greg Clark, the former business secretary today, and I said to him, have you ever heard any business demanding divergence from the EU rulebook? And he basically said, no. It's just a curious question, because I've spent a bit of this week in different parts of the country, in Scotland and in Belfast. And of course, the future of the union is something that's also going to dominate Mr Johnson's term as prime minister. And for both of those perspectives, a so-called high alignment deal on goods is the safest thing because it protects manufacturing and all those. And it weakens the arguments of those who want a united Ireland or to see Scotland break away from the rest of the UK. And as George was saying, for those new Tory MPs in the northeast of England, the Midlands, 
England, who have high manufacturing things. Again, it would protect those supply chains and protect trade. Do you think there's a situation where, in fact, we have this year of talking very tough, but then public opinion kicks in and in the end we do a deal, which Boris Johnson will say is not high alignment, but in fact it is high alignment and trade experts will see that, but he'll tell the public we've got Brexit done and no one will actually care. Yeah, I think that is quite possible. And we saw this week parties in Northern Ireland tabled an amendment to the withdrawal agreement bill calling for the government to guarantee there would be unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to the rest of the UK after Brexit. And that amendment was rejected. But I would expect that to come back. And Northern Ireland is going to continue to press this point. And Boris Johnson says he's a unionist. He knows that this is going to be a huge problem. Yeah, I think that's one way of doing That's one way of keeping Northern Ireland happy and preventing a reunification poll of him losing Northern Ireland, which would be a huge thing for a unionist prime minister to lose. And finally, George, on a different note about Boris Johnson, we haven't seen that much of the Prime Minister this week, rather curiously, that we know he's been off for a 12-day holiday on the Caribbean of Mustique, but there's been this huge crisis about Iran following the killing of General Soleimani. It's quite curious that he hasn't really said or done much about it. A lot of it's been resting on the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab's shoulders addressing MPs and flying around the world. How often do you think we might see from his future premiership that a lot of those key things will rest on cabinet ministers as opposed to the person? the central of government. Why do you think we haven't seen much from him? I think mainly because he's got nothing to gain from going out publicly and doing this. I think you make a good point, which is when he was mayor of London, when he last time ran a big organisation, he did delegate a lot of stuff to deputy mayors and became a sort of titular head of the organisation. So I think that is a pattern we will see established. On the other hand, it's fairly clear this week that Boris Johnson had nothing to gain from putting his head over the parapet on the assassination of the general, because in the end... I'm sure the British foreign policy establishment would love him to criticise Donald Trump, but he didn't want to risk a rift with the US president with the trade talks with the United States coming up. And equally, Boris Johnson is someone who wants to present himself as someone who can build a bridge between America and Europe. So I think probably leaving it to Dominic Raab and to Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, was probably the right thing to do from his point of view, at least. Because we have seen this sort of diplomatic tightrope, Laura, that Mr Johnson's going to have to walk throughout the whole of his time in office because for the past modern time, the UK has always been America's go-to person in Europe. And Mr Johnson has had some success when we look back at the G7 summit in Biarritz where the other world leaders were impressed how he managed to bring these two sides together. Because if you compare the European conventional response to the assassination versus Donald Trump's response, Boris Johnson is really caught in the middle there. And the UK has been criticised by the US. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying the UK wasn't a strong enough supporter of this. I guess that's another reason why he's trying to stay out of this, because whichever way he goes, he either annoys the European establishment or he annoys Donald Trump. And there's not really a a win situation for him in this. There are two problems for Boris Johnson. Number one is how unpredictable Donald Trump is. We were completely on the back foot after the strike. The UK was not given any warning, which is pretty extraordinary given that British military personnel are out in the Middle East at the moment. And the second one is that Donald Trump is a very transactional president and he holds grudges. We know that the ambassador to Iran was summoned by the Iranian foreign ministry and given a ticking off for some of the comments that our ministers have made here in The UK has been warned Iran will not forget who sided with America. And it is really hard. He's stuck and there's only a certain amount of time that he can balance this. But interestingly, the meetings that he had with Ursula this week, they were talking about close security between the EU and the UK after Brexit. That's now back at the forefront of the conversation because clearly it is important that the UK continues to work with the EU but also America. It's really hard for him. He was foreign secretary, of course. 
that's why it was more, more interesting why he chose to keep behind closed doors and let his ministers respond on his behalf. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Jim, Robert, George and Law for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and writing some more FT journalism, then you know where to find our latest subscription offers, ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.